HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody, just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2018. Cheers. To say that she had a childhood would not be an accurate way to describe the biggest movie star of the 1930s. Up until her 10th birthday, she was making four films a year, working long, long hours, and selling $45 million worth of dolls designed to look like her. And in that time, and keep in mind, this is the 1930s, not exactly a sleepy decade for world history. She rivaled the President of the United States and the former Prince of Wales as the most photographed person on Earth. And all of this makes it very, very difficult to parse out where the little girl ends and the Hollywood legend of Shirley Temple begins. America loved Shirley, and whatever she was selling, people were tripping over themselves to buy it. Dolls, dresses, soaps, hats, cereal, that peculiar pink drink that she never got paid for, but her name got stuck to anyway. Which is weird, right? Not the part about Americans throwing their hard-earned cash in an adorable little blonde girl. That's probably not going away anytime soon. But the part about transforming childhood innocence into a multi-million dollar PR campaign, whose mission was the modest goal of wrenching Hollywood back from the brink of certain doom. And weirder still, it worked. I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a better egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. The origin of the Shirley Temple, like a lot of its boozier compatriots, is both wildly complicated and outrageously straightforward. There are lots of people throughout the 20th century who claim that they invented the Shirley Temple, and in reality, there's a sizable chance that a bunch of them did in fact invent a drink called the Shirley Temple, which had no booze in it. It's one of the few constant laws of cocktaildom that people name drinks after that which is newsworthy, and we are talking about a person, after all, who spent a sizable chunk of time as the biggest box office draw in Hollywood. But the most credible claim for the drink probably goes to the Brown Derby, a chain of Hollywood restaurants shaped like brown derbies, as in derby hats that were painted brown. It was a sweeter, kitschier time. 
Now, I'm giving the Brown Derby the distinct honor of inventing the drink for one major reason. Shirley says it happened there, and that woman had a scarily good memory. Even well into the 20th century, she could still remember things that happened when she was eight with a startling degree of accuracy. But there's a tiny hitch in that narrative, because the way she remembers it, the Derby made the drink with cherry juice, not the traditional grenadine. It's a wrinkle, but one that explains away pretty easily if we consider for a moment the differences between good grenadine and bad grenadine. Good grenadine is made with fresh pomegranate juice. It is bright and zingy with a light tangy pop. Bad grenadine is made with an inscrutable melange of ingredients and comes in a fairly recognizable clear glass bottle. Good grenadine has a unique and intriguing flavor. Bad grenadine could very easily be mistaken for cherry juice or simple syrup with red dye number five. Ultimately, I'm still inclined to give the Derby the benefit of the doubt. And if you're curious, give a quick Google to Shirley Temple Brown Derby if you want to see a photo of Shirley and her dad sharing a meal around one of those adorable little hat-shaped centerpieces they had. Like I said, it was a sweeter time. But for all that, the history of virgin drinks didn't begin in Hollywood in the 1930s. That story goes all the way back to the 1700s, when scientists figure out how to dissolve tiny little bubbles of carbon dioxide into water. The wisdom at the time was that carbonated water was just inherently good for you, and so soda water took its place in doctor's offices and pharmacies around the country. Now, this was still many, many years before pills came into vogue, and the fashionable way to take your medicine was to just dissolve it in a liquid. So, with an inherently healthy and ubiquitous delivery system popping up on pharmacy shelves across the nation, patent medicines, tonics, and other cure-alls found their way into fizzy water, and the modern soda fountain was born. Jim Kearns, the beverage director for Slowly Shirley and its upstairs counterpart Happiest Hour in New York's West Village, said that when he was building their beverage program, he looked back to the good old soda fountain days for inspiration. Our menu upstairs uh, started with the metaphor of a soda fountain, and if you read up on soda fountains, they were generally very uh, prep-intensive, prep-front-loaded beverage programs that didn't typically incorporate alcohol. Generally speaking, there there would be a wide variety of very flavorful drinks that one could order when going to one of these establishments. But it wasn't just a dazzling array of flavor combinations and base syrups that made these old-timey soda fountains desirable places. The reason they were such a draw, and the reason they eventually eclipsed the neighborhood saloon as the preferred stop for a morning pick-me-up, was that pharmacists were slipping more into their libations than vitamins and minerals. There was a lot of controversy surrounding soda fountains using kind of like other intoxicating chemicals and substances like Coca-Cola, you know, had cocaine in it. Um, You know, that's the best known example, but there were a lot of them. There were like, you know, sodas that had laudanum in them and all kinds of intoxicating chemicals, drugs, etc. In addition to the fairly well-known former presence of cocaine in what is still America's number one soda, pharmacists were juicing their mocktails with opium, strychnine, cannabis, morphine, heroin, and believe it or not, booze. Alcohol was, and since the chemical structure of an ethanol molecule hasn't changed much since the bygone soda fountain days, still is, a remarkably good way to dissolve solids into liquids. Soon pharmacists were dissolving all kinds of substances into alcohol-based tinctures and selling the much less taxable 
medicines at a price and a potency that must have inspired a fair degree of jealousy from their neighborhood bartenders. Sadly, or maybe fortunately, soda fountain operators couldn't get away with dosing their clientele with stimulants and poison forever. Before long, soda fountains were drawing the ire of America's moral backbone, just like their boozier compatriots at the bar, and another peculiarly American institution, the movies. Ever since Thomas Edison and the Lumiere brothers started making pictures move in the late 1800s, there were people who were concerned, deeply, gravely, morally concerned about the effects these motion picture shows would have on the poor, the lower classes, and perhaps most importantly of all, the children. Won't somebody please think of the children? When talkies came along, they only made the problem worse. While some of those early silent films might have been pretty racy, even by today's standards, tacking a soundtrack on made people's concerns much, much worse. The whole affair came to a head in 1933 with the publication of Our Movie Made Children, a summary of a 1929 study which lambasted Hollywood for corrupting youthful values, driving young people to delinquency, and generally painting a picture of society which was stunningly and unforgivably different from real life. Moralists watched in horror as the professions and marital statuses of people on screen failed to add up to the actual figures in real life. Our movie-made children became a bestseller, and various concerned interest groups, including the Catholic Church's own Legion of Decency, stepped in to see that no more innocent youths were driven to a life of crime by going to the movies. Movies always push the limits. I mean, audiences always want novelty, and, they, and you know, this is throughout the whole history of movies, audiences want to see things that they haven't seen before, and they want to have excitement and fun. So I think we always see Hollywood trying to go a little bit further, you know, be a little bit... Like, there are always filmmakers who, who push the boundaries. David Schwartz, chief curator of the Museum of the Moving Image, has a few theories about the moralizing groups leading the charge against films. You know, you have groups that are latching on to something where they feel they're able to get attention and publicity. Movies were becoming the top entertainment form of the time. It was a lightning rod in a way. Like people, it was an easy thing to go after movies because there was a big audience and a big demand for them and a lot of publicity and advertising. Um, and it was a way for these groups to get a lot of attention. Wittingly or not, the Legion of Decency and its cohorts were borrowing pretty heavily from the Prohibition playbook when they went after Hollywood. By equating freedom of speech in Hollywood with childhood depravity, the primarily Catholic movie censors were using the same tactics their primarily Protestant counterparts had used to foist the 18th Amendment on the nation just a decade earlier. And just like with the dry lobby, it worked. Hollywood realized pretty quickly that they needed to censor themselves before the government did it for them, and they established the Production Code Administration in 1934, which held filmmakers to a strict set of moral guidelines and prevented those without a seal of approval from being released. But they needed more than that. Hollywood, as far as a large swath of the public was concerned, was run by smut peddlers and amoral libertines. The movies needed a new public face, someone fresh, someone wholesome, 
somebody who nobody ever under any conceivable circumstances could ever find even remotely objectionable ever and that same year they found exactly what they were looking for starting with only empty unbounded curiosity i'd been training for 3 years half my life generally a child of 6 is long on curiosity and naturally clever but too restless to sustain prolonged concentration Luckily for me, I could sustain a high level of attention over a considerable period of time, something vitally important in every aspect of acting. Shirley Temple burst on the scene as a relative unknown in 1934, but by the end of that year she had starred in 6 pictures. She had labored in relative obscurity for a long time before that, appearing in a series of fairly exploitative and frankly not very good parody films that she'd been pushed into by her mother, Gertrude I got a telephone call to take her to Hollywood for a screen test. She was crazy about the whole performance and not a bit frightened. Did everything they told her to. A few days later, the Universal Studio called George and me in and told us they wanted Shirley under a 2-year contract for a series of 26 pictures. She is to be the pretty little leading lady. It was no secret that Gertrude had big screen dreams for her youngest child, but it would still be another 2 years before those ambitions paid off. That was when a songwriter from Fox noticed Shirley, fortunately out of work at the moment, in the lobby of a theater in Los Angeles and recommended her for a part in an upcoming feature called Stand Up and Cheer. The film follows the employees of the Federal Department of Amusement as they tour the country with a curio stand of vaudeville song and dance designed to halt the Great Depression in its tracks. And if the critics are to be believed, a great deal of the heavy lifting was done by one particularly ebullient little girl. After that, she went on to make movies back to back to back to back for the next 5 years. She was both a singing dancing pill of sunshine for a depressed nation and an all-in-one head-to-toe wholesome makeover for a troubled Hollywood. The industry as a whole was so grateful they even gave her an honorary Academy Award in 1935. Leaping to my feet, I ran up the ramp to the stage. Right behind me in ladylike haste came mother with father hard on her heels. What did I get this for? Good acting? I asked mother, for making the most pictures of anyone last year, for quantity, not quality. To this day, it's difficult to say what the big colossal titanic appeal of Shirley Temple was to 1930s America. Something about her particular brand of inconceivable wholesomeness seems to fly in the face of human nature. This was the depression. Almost one person out of every 4 was unemployed. You would think that people would be demanding catharsis from their movies, not cheeriness. I asked David about this thorny wrinkle in the Shirley Temple mythos. The studios were were on the verge of of closing down. I mean, there was it was such an economic crisis and ticket sales plummeted, you know, in the early 1930s. And studios like Univer, you know, the big studios like Fox and Universal and Columbia, they were in, in danger of of closing down. so they needed to do something i mean they really needed to save themselves and and this was a part of that effort they didn't want to offend audiences and they were really afraid to borrow a line from the film design for living which was released just 1 year before the production code went into effect immorality may be fun but it isn't fun enough to take the place of 100% virtue and 3 square meals a day Meanwhile, that same year in 1933, the soda fountain went through its own superfication process as thirsty Americans streamed back into bars they'd been forced to abandon for the past 13 years. 
The Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 had already curbed the pharmacists' ability to slip whatever the hell they wanted into their patent medicines before the repeal of Prohibition broke their monopoly over social beverages. With most intoxicants off the table, soda manufacturers turned to two of the public's favorite ingredients to set their products apart, caffeine and sugar. Before long, soda was on the path to becoming the mass-produced saccharin consumable that we all know today. Jim Kearns had this to say about the sudden and brutal fall from grace of the great American soda fountain. They had acquired kind of a stigma, I think, prior to the end of, of Prohibition. They had also, on another tangent, kind of taken on this, like, campy, you know, family environment kind of thing where basically they became like ice cream parlors, sundaes and all this other stuff that just sort of diluted the mission and made it not seem like really something that would be cool to mix with alcohol. And I think then also a lot of soda fountains were just run by unskilled labor. So I think the quality of production and cleanliness and a lot of other things that need to come with running any food or beverage service establishment had gone by the wayside. It is more than a little problematic to glamorize an era when folks were stopping by their local pharmacy every morning to dope up on blow before heading to work. So without sugarcoating it, let me just say that there was a ton of invention and research and creativity happening behind the counter of American soda fountains right alongside the stimulants and the undisclosed side effects. In 1890, DeForest Sachs published Sachs's New Guide, or Hints for Soda Water Dispensers, a landmark recipe guide which has been compared to the renowned How to Mix Drinks by Gilded Age Golden Boy Jerry Thomas. In compiling this book of formulas, it is my aim to not only give, in as concise a form as possible, all my practical working recipes to making syrups, but also all of the latest and best formulas I have created. Based upon long and careful study and practical experiment, covering a period of over 17 years to produce, at the lowest possible cost, the best results. The best proof I can offer of the superior quality of the syrups made from the enclosed formulas is that they are now in use at my own fountains, and that customers will walk four or five blocks out of their way and past other fountains to get a drink of my soda. The pages of Sachs's book are littered with recipes for infusions, tinctures, and extracts, as well as how-tos for lactarts and phosphates, two acid-based ingredients which are only now beginning to swing back into style with the minutia-obsessed neoclassical bar revival. When it was at its best, the Golden Age soda fountain wasn't a seedy den of intoxicants or a sugar-soaked Dairy Queen prequel, but a thoughtful and inventive place where professionals could ply some truly eye-opening beverages. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers in your doors with easy to use Just Egg. You can start with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. 
For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st forward slash HRN. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's idea for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andreas calls Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says it's so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st forward slash hrn. Despite the rich history of soda fountains in America, NPR awarded the title of Original Mocktail to the Shirley Temple upon the actress's death in 2014. It was an association that the real Shirley never quite shook, leading to a pair of lawsuits in the 1980s where she sued two different soda distributors who were trying to market their product under her name. I will fight like a tigress. All a celebrity has is their name. That name had already been put to pretty ample use in the decades beforehand. At the height of her popularity, there were Shirley Temple dolls, Shirley Temple mugs, Shirley Temple dresses, Shirley Temple hats, Shirley Temple books, Shirley Temple magazines, Shirley Temple pajamas, and a collection of Shirley Temple fan clubs so massive that if all their members gathered in the same place at the same time, they would have formed the second biggest city in the United States. All of which exposes one of the biggest fundamental paradoxes of Shirley's work. Is there not sort of an inherent dishonesty in converting baby-faced innocence into an industrial juggernaut that's worth millions and millions and millions of dollars? Shirley's movies rarely strayed from the same plotline, where a sweet little girl melts the heart of a jaded old man so that he sees the light and does right by the average Joe. And yet, day in and day out, this brand of aw shucks cuteness and middle-class decency was being sold hand over fist in just about every department store, dress shop, and movie theater in America. Maybe it's that disconnect, which is tough to ignore, or maybe it's the uncomfortable romantic undertones that run through a lot of her movies, but the sad fact is that a lot of Shirley's movies have not aged well. And in the 21st century, they can be more than a little hard to watch. Renowned British author Graham Greene said as much in 1937 when his review of her performance in Wee Willie Winkie eventually got him sued for libel. But there really is something undeniably weird and a little bit unsettling about watching a tiny, adorable child aping complex adult mannerisms in a way that's almost more convincing than Marlene Dietrich or Gloria Swanson. There's a gap there between the grown-up thoughts and postures and the tiny innocent who's performing them. It's uncanny. Like crushing a couple grams of cocaine on the way to work every morning as a healthy alternative to the saloon. And yet, for all of that, you can't deny that there is something deeply and profoundly and unendingly charming about every single second that Shirley spends in front of the camera. She was, and honestly still is, the best part of every single movie she's in. Older stars were known to complain about how this kid, who hadn't even lost her baby teeth yet, somehow knew camera tricks that it had taken them a lifetime to perfect. There was even a famous incident on the set of Now and Forever where she asked Gary Cooper why he needed a third take for their scene when she had nailed it in one. Even at the age of six, she was one of the smartest, most talented people on set, 
which is probably why she always understood her own career better than everybody else. My intuition was like any kid's, as was my energy level. In truth, the director had someone trained in the fundamentals and ready to work hard. Most important of all, I was at peace with myself. At home and on the set, I was bathed in a nourishing glow of affection. Father was unfailingly jolly and deferential to mother, and both brothers were protective and reconciled to the attention I was receiving. Above all, mother was a constant source of love, ladled out in equal measures of encouragement and restraint. Beneath what the director regarded as a naturally joyous and curious personality was someone with growing self-confidence. I seldom struggled to remember lines, nor blew them. There were no emotional hang-ups. I just stood there in my socks, paid attention, and worked with an uncluttered sense of purpose. Love was the thing that freed me from nagging uncertainty, allowing me to do my job better than the next kid. Love was my philosopher's stone, a constant companion to good cheer. How far is this, this notion of the mocktail, this idea of the fact that you can have an enjoyable, flavorful beverage without alcohol, how far is that come in that time? I think it's probably come about as far as cocktails in general have come, to be honest. I mean, uh, it used to be kind of a limiting request. You know, I don't want, I mean, it's not a pain in the ass or anything. It's no harder than making any other drink. It was just, it used to be fairly, it, it still is limited to what you have behind your bar in terms of syrups and juices. It used to be like, Maybe you'd have like lemon and lime juice, maybe some orange and grapefruit, maybe pineapple, and then you'd have like simple syrup, maybe <laughs> honey and or cane syrup, maybe some demerara. You wouldn't really have a whole lot. You'd basically just have to work with a very sort of simple short list of ingredients. But I think overall people's syrups programs and juice programs have become a lot more involved. And with that, the potential for making non-alcoholic beverages at bars has, you know, exponentially expanded. To hear Jim talk about mocktails and soda fountains and bars and flavors, you get a sense that he shares Shirley's humble and uncluttered sense of pride in a job well done. There's a tiny little smile that loiters on his face, even when he's walking you through some of the more onerous parts of the job. Cleaning, batching, prepping, you know, the stuff we all do because we have to, not because we want to. It's clear, and I know this is going to sound really good ship lollipop, but fuck it. It's clear that he loves his job, especially given one particular aspect of how he works. Do you self-describe as somebody who doesn't drink? I mean, yeah, I, I I don't drink, so I mean that's <laughs> that. It's like I I don't I I don't know. I mean I don't wear you know a badge or you know a t-shirt or anything like that. But I I definitely yeah like I, it's been two and a half years since I sat down with a drink that was intended for me to consume. So I you know, that that pretty firmly describes me as a non-drinker. I think a child star that was revered for her innocence, but worked six days a week. An overbearing mother who is loving. A healthy, alternative beverage brimming with mind-bending substances. Bartenders who don't drink. And cocktails with no alcohol. It all looks contradictory from a distance. But it makes sense when you give it a closer look. Before she retired from acting at the age of 22, Shirley's mother wrote her a letter and mailed it from her house, which was right next door. 
In it, she talks about Shirley's upcoming marriage, her second, but on a more nuanced level. It feels like she's trying to give some oblong, depressionary advice about navigating the divide between one part of life and another. Shirley, darling, I am writing this because I know you are sick and tired of hearing me lecture, and believe me, this is the last word from me on the subject. Shirley, you have been the most wonderful daughter anyone in the world could hope to have. You have carried me to the greatest heights of happiness, to the very bursting point. I have been so proud and have loved you so it has hurt. All in all, for the past 21 years, you have been my very life. Since your marriage, I have tried to be understanding, to just help you if I were ever needed. I think you will agree with me on this. Through happenings during this unfortunate marriage, you have sent me down the deepest depths of despair. You have been in those depths yourself. We have all been crucified. Now everything looks much brighter. Great happiness is in store for you, and I hope your father and I too. I just have one plea to make. For God's sake, make no more mistakes or indiscretions, or all will be lost. You really have been very lucky, but don't push this luck too far. A time will seem to drag, but it will actually be moving very fast. That is all I have to say, Shirley. I hope you understand my reason for writing. Maybe in some little way you can reassure me. Lovingly, Mother. Hollywood was changing in December of 1950 when Shirley Temple retired from the silver screen. The production code that had allowed her movies to flourish was under siege by envelope-pushing directors and foreign filmmakers who were unfettered by rules and regulations. Tastes were changing, too, and even though the mocktail with her name on it was taking off, moviegoers didn't want the harmless feel-good stories her screenwriters kept giving her. But worst of all, Shirley did the one thing which absolutely nobody wanted her to do. She grew up. She saw the writing in the wall. I mean... Of course, the studios decided that she was not a hot property anymore. So I think she lost support from the, from the studios. If they kept producing roles for her and giving her good contracts, she might have stayed as an actress. But um, the audience just did not... I think she, had a, she knew that the audience was not connecting with her. Other stars were coming along, like Judy Garland and all these other... Stars, and I think she just decided to do something else and you know have a good life and have a good marriage and she was you know had all the money she needed and um, yeah she she kept her head together and just sort of moved on to something else and I think she knew that her films would always live on and Shirley Temple would live on too. She raised three children with her second husband, one of whom her daughter Lori eventually became the bass player for Seattle grunge rockers the Melvins, if you can believe it. But just because she was done with movies did not mean that Shirley was done with public life. She maintained her connections with several prominent Republicans, including former co-star Ronald Reagan and a decades-long camaraderie with J. Edgar Hoover, which has got to be one of the weirdest friendships of all time. In 1974, Gerald Ford appointed her U.S. ambassador to Ghana, and in 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, Shirley was watching it happen from her ambassadorship in Czechoslovakia. I got to talk to her, actually, in the, in the 90s, we did a retrospective here at the museum of her films. And so I invited her to speak at the museum, and I got a very nice phone call from her one day. 
you know, the phone, phone rang and, and they said, oh, Shirley Temple's on the line. And it's just, it was like amazing to me to think, you know, it sort of struck me, well, at that time she was only in her 70s. She wasn't, you feel like she's, you know, from the long distant past, but she was so young, you know, when she was a star. But she very politely declined to come to the museum because she was still angry at, at Fox because she <laughs> she ne- she didn't make money off it. She didn't. She was paid for her work, but she didn't have a good deal with them, and she did not um, make as much money as she felt she should have. You know, I mean, she literally was the biggest property in Hollywood, a human property. There was no star bigger than Shirley Temple in the thirties. Dang, what, what, <laughs> what was I? Yeah, I'm sorry. I know we don't have a ton of time, okay. but what was she like? What was that? What was that phone? Oh, speak to her. Oh, she was delight. You know, she was charming. I mean, I think, you know, by all accounts, you know, I think her, she was married twice, but, but her second marriage lasted a very long time, and her husband said she basically had one personality. She seemed to be just a very optimistic, sort of upbeat person, incredibly bright. She was, pl- you know, pleasant to talk to, but she was pretty adamant that she was not going to promote the films that she didn't have a piece of. So I think she was, you know, she was bitter about that, but she, you know, she seemed to be somebody who had a good sense of humor. Shirley Temple went from being a truly remarkable little girl to being a truly remarkable woman, which probably explains why she didn't burn out like so many other childhood celebrities. She was extraordinarily well-adjusted for somebody who never knew what it was like to not be famous, which is a little counterintuitive at first blush, but eventually makes a certain degree of sense. After all, who better to walk the world as a successful adult than someone who'd been impersonating them her entire childhood? Which brings me to my absolute favorite anecdote about Shirley Temple and her relationship with the Shirley Temple. Apparently, she couldn't stand them. She told a reporter as much in 1986. Those saccharine, sweet, icky drinks... Yes, well, those were created in the probably middle 1930s by the Brown Derby restaurant in Hollywood, and I had nothing to do with it. But all over the world, I'm served that. People think it's funny. I hate them. They're too sweet. Now, I don't know if she ever got the chance to try one made with real grenadine, and who knows, maybe it would have changed her mind. But even then, her revulsion at the idea of a kid's cocktail makes sense. After spending her entire childhood imitating adults on screen, I think we can all see why grown-up Shirley Temple had no interest whatsoever in imitating children. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. Thank you to our guests today, Jim Kearns and David Schwartz, as well as our super talented cast, Jennifer Walter, Emily Dalton, and Ben Carlson. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Join us next time when we talk about a park and a drink, two of the only things New York society in the Gilded Age got right. That's in two weeks for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. This is Lou Bank, and before I ever went on any agave road trips, I was taking daily trips on the G-Line from Manhattan to Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where I lived with a couple of my Marvel Comics co-workers. Where we lived then is about four blocks from where Duke's Liquor Box is located now. Where was Duke's in 1989? We sure could have used it back then. Back then, you couldn't even find decent beer. But now, man, now if I were thirsty for something obscure, like, say, I don't know, a gin made with guava and passion fruit, I'd go to Duke's Liquor Box. Haitian bitters? You thirsty for Haitian forest bitters? Hey, go to Duke's. How about heirloom tomato eau de vie? I didn't even know what that was in the 1980s. But Duke's? Duke's has that. Duke's has small batch distilled gems like LA1 whiskey, or if you want to drink like a druid, grab a bottle of their Glendalock pot still Irish whiskey, aged in sustainably harvested 140-year-old Irish oak barrels and ex-bourbon barrels. Or, what's that you say? Does Duke's have agave spirits? Well, of Of course they do! Duke's Liquor Box prides itself on their selection of fine spirits and wines, so you'll find rare, delicious treasures like Cinco Sentidos Tobola, Tozba, Pechuga Mezcal, and Siembra Valle Ancestral Tequila Blanco. Duke's Liquor Box has everything you want, including a selection of New York spirits from their locals' only shelf. The only thing they don't have? That's a guy named Duke. So don't ask for Duke when you visit Duke's Liquor Box at 114 Franklin in the heart of Greenpoint. You can also shop online at dukesliquorbox.com.